Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, are you guys good at dates, remembering specific dates? How many of you have ever forgotten your anniversary? Oh, my word. How many of you, though, even though you might struggle with some dates, have a date where something happened that was so cataclysmic, so important, so big, that you will never forget that date? Any of you? Uh, we have a number of dates that are big in my mind, but uh, April 20th, 2008. How many of you guys remember that? Uh, Jennifer was on her way home, my daughter on her way home uh, to college. I mean, on her way back to college, which was her home at that time, from here, and they had a very, very, very serious car accident. And for a while, we didn't know if she would make it. Then we didn't know what kind of fallout there would be from that accident. But I don't know that we'll ever forget that. And the truth is, knowing what was, remembering what was, gives us greater appreciation for so many things today. And that's really the point of what I want us to look at again today, picking up from what I had shared with last time. Remember last time I said to not remember is to lose appreciation for the present and to tarnish anticipation and expectation for the future. In other words, there are certain things that we need to remember so that we can actually live now and with hope for then with greater sense of hope for it. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Ex or Ephesians? Yeah, I said Exodus. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Last time I spoke to you, I talked to you about three conditions that Paul lays out in the first part of that chapter. And he talks about what was true of us before Christ, before we were saved, before we became Christians. And he basically said we were sick unto death, we were sabotaged by an enemy, and we were sentenced to hell. That's true of every single person in this room before Christ. That's true of every single person in the world before Christ. But now Paul, towards the end of this chapter, actually speaks of another condition. Something else that is true of every one of us before Christ that he exhorts us to remember. And I want to suggest to you that what Paul is going to say today is in some ways even worse than we, what we looked at last time. So, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 11. If you don't have your Bible, the Scripture will be up on the screen, I believe. It says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And jump down to verse 17 if you have your Bibles. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul here talks about, in verse 12, five things that is true for every single one of us, every single person on this planet, five things that are true of us prior to Christ, prior to our coming to know God in salvation and becoming a part of Him. And those five things, I'm going to give them to you, and then I want to look at them really quickly, each one. So five things that we were without, Paul says in verse 12. Five things. Number one, you were without Christ. Number two, you're without community. Number three, you're without identity. Number four, you're without hope. And number five, you're without God. Five things that is true of every single one of us prior to our relationship with God. Now, it was in 1993 that Tom and Sharon and I made what was for me my first missions trip to Haiti. And when we got off the plane in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, which was the capital city, there was a strangeness to it like I had never experienced in my life. I mean, we had traveled around a little bit, but I mean, this was so different that it was unbelievable. The place, honestly, you get off the plane, it stunk so bad you could barely take it. All of their garbage, all of the refuge, all of the affluence of that area is in the streets. And the smell was horrendous. The place was grungy, garbage laying all over the place. And uh, when we got off the plane, we were greeted on the tarmac. So you came down off the plane, you didn't go through a jetway. You came down onto the tarmac. We were greeted with two rows of soldiers with machine guns. And not one of them smiled. And you had to walk through them, and they're all staring at every single one. You had to walk through them into the airport. We got into the airport, and all of a sudden I realized every single person here is black. Every single person here is speaking another language. And not one of them is smiling or happy that I'm there. We couldn't find a happy face. They were kept out on the other side. And all of a sudden I realized I am a stranger here. No one is like me. The food was different. Everything was different about it. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe for you it was going on a mission trip. Maybe you've gone someplace different. Or maybe for you, it's when you met your spouse now and you had to go meet his family and you realized everything was different than anything you had ever lived with before. Or maybe for you it was starting a new job and it felt so strange to you. Or or whatever it might be, what you do in those instances is you look for something familiar, something that can bring you some sense of comfort. Uh, I can remember uh, back in 1977 or so, 76, 77, I was in a traveling choir for the Bible College of which I was a part. And we would travel all over the United States. And we would go and we would end up staying in people's houses. People you didn't know. You'd go to churches and you would sing for people you didn't know. You were in areas you'd never been in before. And every single time, which for me felt extremely strange, every single time I look forward to going back to Elam, to that Bible college. And when we would come up over the hill in Bloomfield, we could see the water tower for Lima in the distance and suddenly my heart began to warm. We were almost home. Home brought us some sense of comfort. 
I've often thought about the fact that C.S. Lewis calls this world the Shadowlands because every one of us is here in part waiting for our true home, which is going to be on the other side. Uh, we sing songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's true for all of us. So there's something strange that's built into it. And Paul here is talking about some sense of us being without things. Um, have you ever felt excluded from any group? Maybe for you it was when you were in school. Uh, when I was in school, we had several groups. We had the jocks, who were the athletes, who were the really good ones, the popular ones. The cheerleaders were a part of that group. They were all there. And then on the other extreme, you had the druggies. So you had the athletes, you had the druggies. In, up here on the upper end, though, not quite in the middle, but on the upper end, you had the brainiacs, the people that were real smart. You know, the people that let everybody else cheat off their papers so that they could be popular, too. So that was all in my school, and I didn't fit into any of those groups. Have you ever felt like that, like you didn't quite fit in? That's kind of how I felt growing up. And that's the feeling that Paul is intentionally trying to evoke here in this Scripture, that there is something strange about us. We are without several things. So I want us to look at them. The first one he says is we're without Christ. I'm not going to take a lot of time because I actually dealt with that last time we spoke. But I do want you to understand, he says we're without Christ. He doesn't say we're without Jesus. Christ is his title. It's, it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of anointing. So when he says we're without Christ, he says he comes as the anointed one who breaks the yoke of bondages in our lives, but you're without Christ. You're stuck in a rut. You can't change things without Christ. He is the one that actually changes your life. We have all these life groups that we've just gone through here at some length, and yet not one of those will change you if in going to them you don't meet with Christ, who comes with His anointing to break the yoke of bondage in your life, the lies that we have come to believe. But the second ex exclusion that Paul gives here is the without community. He says it in verse 12. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. As far as the people of Israel concerned, they were the in crowd. Um, do you know what it's like to be unpopular? Especially when the in crowd goes by and they're all smiling and laughing and having a good old time. And then there you are standing, perhaps, if you're like me, you're standing against the locker trying to hope no one will even notice you. That's kind of what was happening in this day that Paul is writing. As far as the Israelites were concerned, they were the in crowd. Everybody else was outside of that. They were the foreigners, the aliens. They were picked on. They were bullied. They were treated like they were less than a dog. And remember, the Syrophoenician woman said to Jesus, even the dogs get to eat crumbs off the table because she knew that the Jews of that day called the Gentiles dogs. There was this huge class war between the Jews and and all of the rest of the world. As far as the Jews were concerned, there were only two groups of people. There were the people of God, of which they were, and then there was everybody else that they called Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. They were the outsiders. Here's what the Jews said. This is actually out of their own writing. The Gentiles were created by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. That's what they believed. In fact, if a Jewish woman came upon a Gentile woman having a baby and struggling 
so that her life and the baby's life was jeopardized, they weren't allowed to even help, lest they bring another Gentile into the world. They would rather they both died. If perchance a Gentile, or a Jewish man rather, married a Gentile woman, the Jewish man's family had a funeral for him. Because as far as they were concerned, he was dead. When a Jewish person would say the word Gentile, when they would get done uttering that word, they would turn and they would spit to get the bad taste out of their mouth. That's what they felt like. This whole thing about Jews and Gentiles. But the truth is, you and I know that God created every single human being to live in community where there is a sense of love and acceptance, where you're wanted, where you're apart, where you're in. But the Jews propagated this idea that was quite different. In 1904, in a small place called Azusa, just a, a little street in Los Angeles, in 1904, God, in His grace, poured out His Spirit in a way that probably hadn't been known since Pentecost Sunday. God poured out His Spirit. And one of the statements that came out of Azusa Street is this. The bloodline washed away the color line. Quite contrary to the culture at that time, you would have black people, Hispanic people, Jewish people, white people, you had them all together in one place seeking the presence of the Lord. The bloodline, the blood of Christ, washed away the color line. The blood of Jesus Christ washes away all barriers, whether they be color or culture. In Christ, no one is inferior to anyone else. All come on the same level ground of the cross. But was, was this belief that the Jews had just a matter of them being prejudiced? Or was there some basis for it? I want to suggest to you that if you read the Bible, you will understand where, where this idea actually even came from, including even from God's own mouth. Look at the Scripture in Genesis 17 where God talks about the covenant that He was making with Abraham. It's in Genesis 17 and verse 7. He says, this is God speaking, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will be their God. That which sets you apart from everybody else. That which makes you special. I will be their God. Exodus 6-7. God says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then in Jeremiah 24-7, God says, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. So for the Jews, they felt like they were justified in their prejudice because God has said, you are special. I will make you my people. It's why they believed that they were above everybody else because they had God. Jehovah was their God. But I want you to get this. The, the attitude that the Jewish people had was not the attitude that God was propagating in His statements. 
Because if you go back into Exodus chapter 19, God says to the Jewish people, I will be your God and I will make you a kingdom of priests unto the rest of the world. Because your job is to bring the rest of the world into relationship with me. And that's really how God felt about the rest. Remember, God is the one who said, for God so loved the whole world. It wasn't just the Jews that He loved. He loved the whole world. But the Jews took it as they were special. They were set apart because Jehovah was their God. So Paul tackles this wrong interpretation of what God said and declares that the very definition of what it means to be a Christian is that we're now all in. No one's out in Christ. We're all in. They were without Christ, but now they're in. They were without a sense of connection, but now they have connection because they're in Christ. We are the recipients of God's love and favor. He's placed His attention upon us. Um, you've heard people talk about the home team. Like, I hear there's a game tomorrow. Um, I have some friends who care about that kind of thing. Uh, there's apparently a game tomorrow, and it's a home game. And we are the home team. And some people talk about the, the fellowship they're a part of as their home church. What Paul is saying is, you used to be without, but now you're in. And now you're home, because you're home in Christ. The next thing Paul deals with is this sense of you being without identity. He says you're strangers from the covenant of promise. Covenants are what give us our sense of security, our sense of identity. The covenants deal with the largesse of God towards us. It, it, it deals with His desire, not His obligation. The covenants display His desire to bless us to give us an inheritance that's rich and full. You see, there are a lot of people who come to Christ, but they come to Christ with a lot of baggage of sense of shame, of not feeling like they're quite good enough. And God's greatest desire is to set you free from the lies that continue to manipulate your mind and your heart, to bring you to a place, as Jeremiah 29 says, where you feel like you have a sense of a hope and a future. The covenants give you a sense of purpose, of calling, of destiny. When you come to Christ, you're not just saved from your sins. You're saved into a new way of life. A holy calling is upon every single person. The covenant speaks of your usefulness and your significance in the kingdom of God. Every one of us know that we matter to God, but God wants you to know that your life is significant, that you matter to the world around you, that those little things that you do that you think don't mean too much, God says everything you say, everything you do matters because you're a part of His family. You've been included. So that your life has significance. Every one of us is born with two basic needs. A need for significance and a need for security. And God says in the covenants, you find that sense of significance. That you matter to the world around you. The next thing that Paul deals with is you're without hope. Hope springs from the promises that God makes about you and over your life. Without promises, you have no sense of hope. Um, where's Dan Rhodes? Let's say, Dan, um, you're in debt to Pastor John. And you owe Pastor John $2 billion. Now, I did some figuring, Dan. At your current rate of pay, Figuring in cost of living raises over the rest of your life. Figuring at some point you're going to do something stupendous and your workplace is going to give you a great raise. 
and figuring that you will live on nothing. You will eat nothing. You will do nothing. You will drive nothing. You will expend no money. I have figured out that probably within about 3,000 years, you should be able to pay him off. But I've got good news for you. I will go ahead and pay your debt for you. Does, does that make you feel good? Yeah. It makes you feel really good until you look at my savings account. And you realize, I don't have that kind of money. And I will never have that kind of money. You see, my promise might be laudable. It might be nice even. It's kind. But the promise is only as good as me having the resources to fulfill my promise. And that's what Paul is trying to say to us. God's made a promise. And He also has all of the resources necessary to fulfill that promise. They came without hope because they had no promises. And God says, I have given you some promises. Promises for your life. And I have the resources to fulfill those promises. As far as the Gentiles were concerned, death was either one of two things. It was either the end of all existence, which many of them believed that in annihilation, that when you died, everything just died, you became worm food and you were forgotten forever. Or it was a matter of metamorphosis, of regeneration, or another word we might use is reincarnation. Except for, for the Gentiles of the day, they believed that in each iteration, each time they would be reborn, it would just be more suffering in this world. So death was either annihilation or it was suffering. It was despair for them. Why? Because they had no promise from God of something that would come after this that would be better. That this world is not the end. This world is not our home. Solomon worded it like this. He said, my culture says this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That gives you a lot of hope, doesn't it? Just do whatever you want, because it doesn't matter. Tomorrow you're going to be gone anyways. And our culture isn't much different, by the way. Our culture continues to try to push death off. We're constantly doing things. I was thinking this week, uh, looking um, at Facebook and at some of the things that came up. These are just in this last week, things that, you, that I saw. We saw plastic surgery, extreme makeovers, liposuction, health spas, health foods, all, all again promising to help us to live longer. Why? Because we don't want death. Because we feel like death is the end of it all. Unless you have hope in God. Personal trainers to make our bodies strong and alive. Uh, I, I love this sta statement. It kept coming up again. 60 is the new 40. What a stupid statement. 60 is still 60. I'm sorry. We have thousands of different diets, cosmetics, all to cover up the truth that we're getting older. All to prolong youth and to avoid death. Uh, when I was a kid, we had an old commercial, uh, beer commercial, that said this, you only go around once, so grab all the gusto while you can. That was the mindset of the Gentiles. Why? Because they had no hope. They had no sense of hope. All done, no hope, because they don't have the promises of God. And then Paul finally ends with driving a nail in their coffin when he says, you're without God. Now, i got to admit, when I first read that, I thought, uh, duh, no kidding, Paul, you've been saying that all along. But then I realized Paul has been trying to build line upon line, bringing them to a point of realization of what they were before Christ. 
He says, you were dead in your sins. Your lives were being sabotaged and manipulated by a real enemy. You were without a home or a family to fit in. You were without an identity to give you purpose. Without hope for a future. You were sentenced to hell. And what does that all add up to? It adds up to this. You were without God. He wants them to understand the horror of what it meant before they came to Christ. You were without God. Never forget that. Never forget who you were and where you were and where you were going. Never forget. Because that causes you to live today differently. When you realize what God has done for you, His kindness to you, you will never live the same. See, it's when people say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they continue to live the same way, it makes me wonder whether or not you've really had an encounter with God. Because once you've encountered God and your life has changed, you will never live the same. Your life will change. If you stay the same, that's contrary to the Word of God. And God's purpose is for your life. Your life matters, but it matters because He gives it purpose and how you should live. We sometimes say things like this in our testimony. We say things like, I don't know how anyone could go through what I went through without God. I want you to think about that for a minute. Have you ever gone through something where you realized I desperately needed God to get through this? And we know that there are people who don't have that and you wonder, how, how can they go through that kind of thing? But do you ever think about the fact that what it really means is that there are people around you all day long, people on your teams, people at workplace, people in school who don't have God. They have no home, they have no identity, they have no sense of purpose. All of them. I mean, we like to think, yeah, but they're so nice. In fact, they're nicer than some Christians I know. But they still are dead in their trespasses and sin. They're still without hope. They're still without God. Paul sums up the sad despair of all of this by saying, you're without God. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. God didn't just wink at you and say, you know, I've watched you a long time. I really kind of like you, so come on in. No, God paid the price in His own blood for your life. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, is what Paul tells us. The blood of Jesus Christ. And then Paul uses this phrase, you've been brought near. In verse 14, God has broken down the middle wall of separation. And here he's talking about the veil that was in the temple. The temple had four courts to it. It had what was known as the outer courts. And in the outer courts, it was divided into the court of the Gentiles and the court of the woman. But in the court of the Gentiles, in front of them was this barrier. And the barrier was made of marble. And written in the marble was this phrase. And it said this, Let no one of any other nation come within the fence and barrier around the holy place. Whoever is taken doing so will have himself to be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. In other words, if you went past this marble barrier, your death was assured. You would die. So you had the outer courts. But then beyond the outer courts, you had the court of the Gentiles, which is where the Jewish people would come and they would make their sacrifices. And then you had the inner court, which was really the court of the priests, where they would actually take care of the, all of the items within the temple. And then you had the most holy place, which was really the court of God Himself. 
But Paul evokes that image because he's saying, as Gentiles, you could never go beyond the outer courts. There was always barriers. There were always speed bumps to keep you from moving forward. But now, in Christ, that middle wall, that wall of separation has been broken down. And now, you're in Him. In Ephesians 2, Paul is declaring that because of the blood of Christ, all barriers have been removed. I was reading this week a story of a major battle that occurred during World War II in France. And in the midst of the battle, an American soldier was killed. And his troop, the brigade that gathered around him, there was about another 10 or 12 that were left. They wanted to give him a burial. And they remembered that they had passed just days before a Catholic church. And in that Catholic church, it had a fence around it and it had a cemetery in it. So they went back to that church and they asked the priest if they could bury their comrade in the cemetery. And the priest said to him, well, is he a Catholic? And they said, well, we don't know. He said, well, then I'm sorry, I can't let you bury him because this is only for Catholics. And so they went away sad. They didn't know what to do. So they actually dug a hole just outside of the fence and they buried their comrade there. The next day, they thought they would come back and pay their uh, final respects to their fallen comrade. And to their shock, they couldn't find the grave. They looked all, they couldn't even find any fresh dirt. They didn't know what happened. They were going to leave just figuring, oh, it's a mystery. We can't get it. And finally, they saw the priest walking around to them and they stopped and waited for him. And finally, they said, we came to pay our last respects and we can't find it. And he said, well, all night long, I was up just really bothered by the fact that I had kept you out because you weren't a Catholic. So I couldn't move the cemetery, but what I could do is I moved the fence so that your comrade was in the fence. And that's really what God has done for you. He's taken you who are afar off and He's brought you in. You're no longer an outsider. You're in. Even on your worst day when you feel lonely and a little bit like you're not a part of something, whatever it might be. Maybe sometimes you felt like, I don't really fit in here. But you are in because you're in Christ. You're part of the family of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us what God's love does for us. He takes us who are without and He brings us in. Would you stand with me? Would you take a moment and just kind of bow your heads? Just kind of wait on the Lord for just a moment. Just between you and the Lord, every single one of us at times have felt like we were outsiders. We have felt the awkwardness, the strangeness of not quite fitting in. We have felt the reality of Something missing. And Paul here is saying, for every single one of you who knows Christ, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You've now been brought in. You're a part of the family. You're no longer a stranger. He's only got one mat in front of his home and it's called welcome. Welcome home. And he's inviting you to come home today. Come home to his heart. Don't stay far off. He's broken down that wall of separation so that you can feel free to come to him but also to his family.
But Paul's also saying this so that you will know and you will realize there are people still out there who are outside. And our joy, our privilege, is to invite them into the family. Not to treat them like the Jews did the Gentiles, but to love and to bring them in so that they can know the full acceptance of God. That that which you have received, they can receive. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm asking you to cause this reality to dawn on us. For some here, Lord, they've said the words and they've started coming to church, but they don't really feel a whole lot. They, They just come because it's their religious obligation somehow. Lord, I'm asking you to cause there to be a revelation of their acceptance, that they're part of the family, and that because of that, because there is the presence of God in their life, their life now has purpose. It matters. It matters to the family of God, but it also matters to the world around them. Their life has taken on new significance without, but now they're within. Father, help us to live that way every day. Like what we say and what we do matters. Not because we're espousing some sort of ranting political persuasion, but because we're speaking of the things that are eternal, not temporal. We're speaking of the things of the kingdom of God, the reign of God over all the earth that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that our responsibility is to be able to share what you have done in us and for us with those around us. Help us to live lives that matter. Paul says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has ordained for us. Not just to do good works in order to earn our way into anything, but because we're in, we want to live like our king. Lord, let that dawn upon hearts and minds today, that we are different. We who were afar off have been now brought near. And that middle wall, that separated us from God and from one another has now been broken down. Help us to live lives that matter. Lord, let your hand rest upon every heart and mind here today that we would realize what Paul, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, is saying to every single one of us. God's heart is to bring many sons and daughters in. And we want to be a part of it. We pray it, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.
God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. And for those of you that are interested in baptism or membership, please downstairs is Pastor John's office. Meet with him down there, okay? He will be down there with you. Pastor John is the guy right there, by the way.